Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some um, awesome. All right, friends, before we get to the wrap-up show, Jonathan and I are going to tell you about the sponsor for this month. It's Sally Gary's E3 Conference. Jonathan, have you heard about it yet? I have. I've, I've heard about it every week on here, but also because Sally's a, a good friend. She's great, isn't she? She is. She's a wonderful person. So the end of October at the Highland Oaks Church in Dallas, Texas, um, Richard Beck's going to be there. I'll be there. Sean Palmer, Wade's going to be there. Sally Gary, of course, will be there. Plenty of other people will be there. And this is a great place for those who are wrestling with questions about sexuality and faith, Uh, for those who are trying to figure out um, what to do about the LGBTQ community and your church and how those within your church who are part of that community can be served and loved. So I hope you guys join us in Dallas, Texas, the end of October. For more information, click on the show notes that are included. And now, here we go. All right, friends. You know Get ready is? for some more awesome than trip. Oh, wow. You jumped right into your trip jealousy. You guys know what it is. June wrap-up, we've got the jealous Jonathan on the line. <laughs> is that like my mixer name? I don't jealous know. It just, Jonathan? it just came right out. I mean, it seemed like it was very fitting. I was just uh, saying, like, I brought a lot more energy than the little mini faux quasi-wrap-up you did with it Trip wasn't a, day. we didn't call, even call it a wrap-up. It was. It felt fa- like you were trying to say that the wrap-up that we had done about the Devil Palooza was insufficient. No, no. Tripp and his little uh, minions of liberals and atheists had <laughs> questions <Minions. laughs> that we needed to answer. And so I figured it was just like some evangelism I was doing to the home-brewed people. So I'm going to say i actually had heard about homebrewed you know a long time ago but i'd never really listened to any of their stuff but i have started since this crossover thing and I, i'm i'm impressed i, I like i like trip i'd like to get to know him um and maybe i could do a crossover and no how stay. dare you um but hey. my my favorite part of that was when he called you boresworthy that was amazing. How have we never noticed that your name rhymes with boars? It, that's not even funny. Like, do I have big tusks or something? I don't no, like a like boar. Boredom, like no, that doesn't like, make sense. I don't do boredom. You drone on and on. No, no, you mm. don't do boredom. You're always excited with yourself, but the, <laughs> the others. <laughs> that is so mean. No, no. You know I. I like Trip. Trip's a nice guy, he and is. his podcast is it's it's smarty pants. A lot of smartness on that one. So yeah, that's what, maybe uh, that's why I gravitate more towards. Well, that's probably but, also why he never asked you to be on it. But. <laughs> you're right. You're so right. So there were moments where I'm like, I think I disagree with that, but I'll just keep it to myself because I feel like um, Trip is like getting in an argument with Richard Beck, where hmm. when he would tell me something that he thought that I disagreed with. I would I've literally said this to him on multiple occasions. I'm going to, I'm going to get back to you. And then it'd be like a month later that I would come back and be like, yeah, okay, but, but what about this? And <laughs> you would show him what's up. Burnt. Yeah. Burnt yeah. back. That's him. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Trip was good. Now I know we're, we're recording this on um, Tuesday, the 28th, instead of, 
tomorrow, which would be the normal day we're doing this, uh, Wednesday the 29th, you're unavailable. I'm, I'm sure you want to tell everyone why you can't record tomorrow. You were so quick to inform me what you're doing. <laughs> I was not. I was just telling you I couldn't do it. I'm <laughs> keynoting Wednesday at Lipscomb University, so we can't do the podcast then because I'm keynoting myself. I'm traveling all day, and then I'm, I'm going to speak that night, so... Oh, okay. Well, just the text just was, there's just like bold <laughs> font. I'm keynoting. And then little text. I know you need some, some Bible-based preaching, so I was hoping you'd stream it or something. <laughs> uh, which sermon of mine are you ripping off? Oh, gosh. So <laughs> are you done with Ruth? I am. Yeah, I finished it up this last week. So I, I, one of the harder things about doing a series with you and Seedman has been that I've just been behind. So, in terms of like the standing of which sermon people preferred the best, <laughs> is that what you meant or what? Nope. I got two more weeks to go, and um, somebody came up to me the other day who was at Westover, and they were like, "I know y'all's secret now." <laughs> now we're we're pretty open about this. It's not necessarily a secret. Like I really like writing sermons with other preachers, and mm-hmm. um, anyway, and then I just told them all the best stuff was original to me. Uh, mm-hmm. Luke, I told them, here's what Luke added. Luke added the Jeff Foxworthy redneck joke. <laughs> you, both of you would use that too. I think we all use them the exact same day. Oh, you know what's good. crazy? I use the, uh, the Stanford marshmallow study, you know, the famous one from the yeah, 70s. Yeah. Uh, and someone said Ashley used it the week before at the Hills. No way. Yeah. Ashley going on psychology on us. Have you seen that video? There's like videos made of kids actually, they recreated that experiment. It's a great bumper video if you're going to talk about it. No, I just, since I'm a preacher, I just use words. And mm. that's that's my medium. I don't need to use videos and stuff. No, that's true. That's stupid. I just think of Jesus and all the props he yeah. used. I use, I've, I've seen a lot of those videos that Jesus shot. And <laughs> I saw the bumper he did for the Sermon on the Mount. What do you think the bumper video would have been for the Sermon on the Mount? I think if it's he, Vintage 21, right? Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. It's me, Jesus. I'm here to tell you what you've all done. The, oh, goodness. Well, um, shall we jump in? We shall. This month, we've got uh, Josh Graves returning to the show. Um, mostly just to apologize for the lack of faith he had in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, How many times have, are you going to make him apologize for that? I mean, just anytime I need a good intro, I'll just okay. use that. Okay. Yeah, I've only made him do that one time in public. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got Jonathan Martin uh, talking about uh, shipwrecks. We've got Joshua Ryan Butler, a.k.a. the Pope's best friend. Uh, we got the aforementioned Trip Fuller doing the Devil Palooza follow-up, not to be confused with a wrap-up. Side note, one of my friends told me that, uh, Kirby told me, if, uh, if you and Trip did a podcast together, it would be a level five dumpster fire. So whatever that if, means. If me and Trip did? or Yeah, level five dumpster fire. That's what it would be. Um, and <laughs> What does that mean? I don't know. I figured you, it was some Arkansas thing you know about. And uh, last but certainly not least, Lisa Sharon Harper talking about the very good gospel. So let's just jump right in with Josh Gray's The Self-Proclaimed Healthiest Enneagram 3. Okay, first off, that he self-proclaimed, so that is exactly what an unhealthy 3 would do. Why is that? Like, um, yeah, so I'm the healthiest 3. Like, threes love competition when they're working out of their ego. 
So basically, Graves is like, yeah, is there a competition? The best. Done. So <laughs> I don't know that you can necessarily trust that as like a clinical diagnosis because that's exactly the – when I went up to Suzanne Stabile and um, when she was doing Enneagram work at Highland, I asked her, which one's the best? She goes, you're a three. <laughs> anyway that's a three that's definitely a three yeah yep. so Graves so do you is... do you think you're healthier than him though oh yeah oh yeah i'm a three mm-hmm. too so mm-hmm. poor poor josh now you be right through <clears throat> hollow <clears throat> just all image based yep he's destined for the grave graves. no he's he's josh great graves josh graves and... you it's so great that you wrote a foreword to that book, which basically makes you an expert on the subject, since you wrote... Did you write the foreword or a blurb? No, I didn't. I just wrote a blurb for it, but that was like years ago when it was a... Um, and that makes you... But you've book. said that, that that makes you an expert on the right. subject. Yeah. I'm, I'm an expert on the subject as much as Josh is the healthiest Enneagram 3. Yeah, I wrote a, uh, uh, an endorsement for a book about Kierkegaard, so I've been referring to myself as a Kierkegaard <laughs> expert since Hold on. Then. Who in the world that knows Kierkegaard would look around and think, you know who really <laughs> could endorse this book? Who <laughs> would do that? I think it's a very intelligent person who clearly... Those words uh, do not overlap. You know, I, it, it, he was Are just you willing like to make a. Or something? He's just. I've willing, never heard you talk about Kierkegaard. He's just willing to make a leap of faith and see what I did there. That is the only Kierkegaard. thing you know. About <laughs> <Kierkegaard>. <laughs> <It is so true. laughs> okay, carry on. Okay, let's get back to the subject which you are an expert on because you wrote a blurb for his book. Um, uh, okay, so here's. Uh, side note, be, since Graves was on the podcast and uh, now, there was a crazed uh, Muslim gentleman. Oh, that's right, yeah. Who went into a hospital in north of Dallas in a town called Denton where my wife used to work. That's my, my wife's old hospital that the guy went in there and shouted some crazy things. That, wait, when did that happen? It was just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so right after Orlando? I thought you were going with Orlando. No, no, no. I don't think Orlando... I don't know if this is true or not. The more stuff I've heard about Orlando, the more I think of it as like a, and I don't know anything about this, but I think of it as like this closeted gay guy who doesn't want to come out and he was scorned by someone there. Mm. And it's more like a lover's revenge, less like a Islamic terrorist but he, attack. I mean, I don't, I don't watch the news very much, so I read the New York Times and that's it. Do you, didn't he call 911 and say, I'm doing this, I pledge allegiance to ISIS and stuff? I, yeah, no, he called. So he was framing it that way, but that wasn't the motivation. I don't know. I don't know. We're gossiping okay, now. Right. There's no reason to talk about that. Um, but there's obviously this subject is always going to be popping up on our radar. And whether yeah. it's um, you know some crazed gentleman who goes into a hospital where my wife used to work and says that, or someone blows up a hospital or someone... Uh, or a hotel or whatever, it's always going to be the forefront of the news. So I think it's an important conversation. Yeah. And... Uh, now, Leslie's stepdad, is that right? Yeah, so I think the reason Graves had asked me to write an endorsement about it might have been because uh, let, my wife grew up with uh, a Muslim stepdad from Palestine who um, she grew up doing Ramadan. Leslie was never a Muslim, but um, just didn't really have a, a strong faith background outside of 
what her stepdad believed, and he didn't try to convert them to Islam, but she did Ramadan, she did all that stuff, uh, big feast, little feast, and I got to know um, her stepdad, and the, you know, just just how helpful it is to have a resource like that for Christians once you start getting to know these people that aren't like on the other side of the world and, yeah. you know, with globalization and, and um, a large, pers- the rising percentage of people who are Muslim living in America. I, so when, when I first heard about Orlando, one of the things I actually thought was, I'm, I'm grateful for Josh's book because it was ahead of its time and the more that um, a few bad apples try to... Um. You know what I mean? Like, what do you it's say? A really okay, helpful so book. What do you say to the people who think that the bad apples represent the entire bunch, where they would say these people are an accurate representation of the entire religion? I mean, I think you could say that about the KKK and Christianity, then, mm-hmm. um, yeah. or Westboro Baptist Church. They certainly get a lot of press, uh, a lot more press than the Christians serving at the homeless shelter or picking up after Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. Um, have, you, just, have you ever heard of uh, just war theory, which is a yeah. way to interpret the world, like where you say if something happens bad to you, it's just, you know, chance. But if it, like car accident, for example, um, you know, oh, just, you know, unlucky circumstances, that's what happened to me. But if it happened to someone else, it's because, well, they're a bad driver, they're irresponsible. Oh. And so just Did world. You just, oh, I world. Said just war. I think I might have said it, but it's just world theory, um, where basically you interpret everything in for for your own self-interest and your so yeah. own self-preservation. It's almost as if we do that with our religion of, okay, we're Christians, and so we're going to you know, wipe under the rug the Westboro Baptists, the KKKs, and, and the witch hunts, and the Crusades. But when it's someone else's religion, we're going to say, no, 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 that's exactly what they're mm-hmm. all about. Same kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... That's exactly what what we do as well, and we do that. You know, I, in in our particular tribe, we were sectarian for a long time, so we did that with other branches of Christianity. Yep. You know, just uh, but you know, one of the things that I think Josh is doing really, really well is, and you all talked about it in podcasts, is a lot of times people who do interfaith stuff um, fail to like cherish their own distinctiveness. You know, mm-hmm. like who the and and Josh is very firmly a Jesus person, like y'all said. Um, and I, I think when you when you start to do that, you have when you stop to to be who you are and and try to get into some kind of uh, secular secular society is really great for pluralism um, until the the particulars lose their ability to be particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, Charles Taylor would say our secular society came about from Christianity and just the insistence on being able to see um, people who have differences and as, as people that mattered. Yeah. Um, and so doing this from a very firmly Christian perspective, I think, is, is yeah. really helpful. And it's offensive to to the the purely secular position that is just common sense and also nonsense these days about all religions are the same and 
they don't like I said they don't have the same telos they don't have the same yeah they don't want to go up the same mountain yeah yeah so, so there's like those seem to be the the two sides of you know the bowling alley one side you have this you know everyone's going to the same place and so it's you know it doesn't matter and the other side is the oh, well, I'm going to be vigilant and I'm going to destroy everyone else's religion and say, that, you know, mine's the only right one and we can't get along and we can't have um, conversations, we can't serve together, we can't do community together. And so yeah. there has to be another way to say, okay, we do think, we, you know, to use Wolf's language, we have an ideal for what the, a flourishing life looks like and we believe Jesus is the way for us to get there and yeah. we want others to have that same experience with Jesus. But... We also want to be respectful of others, make room, you know, make room for them to be the best they can be of who they are. It's, it's a weird tension to hold those two things, to be a converting evangelistic religion while also being a hospitable religion. Yeah, so uh, the, the passage I like for the world we live in today is Acts, where Paul goes to Ephesus and he is uh, preaching you know, about Jesus. They start a riot. Mm-hmm. People want to kill him, and one of the guys from Ephesus, one of the leaders in the city, steps up and says, Hey, hey, these guys have neither harmed our temple or blasphemed our gods. Like, he is very evangelistic. Paul yeah. is trying to preach Jesus as Lord. And he's even saying, you know, the critiques of Artemis' religion. But at the end of the day, the guy stands up and says, Look what he didn't do. You know, like... Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a um, a fair place for the Christian faith to be to be hospitable to not you know there's no reason to be anything but kind to to someone because of your faith especially if you have a, a faith in Jesus who was incredibly kind yeah yeah this is why I think so many of us ripped off John Ortberg's who was this man. Uh, where he had the mm-hmm. the chapters about how Christianity has improved society, and you go, yes, that's that's what I want to be a part of. That's what I want to be tied to, and, um, and so that's good. All right, so uh, let's go, jump to Jonathan Martin. You're a big Jonathan Did, Martin fan, aren't? I like him so much. Yeah. Why do you like him so much? Well, I, I, I don't say like prototype. I don't mean that to be condescending. Like, how could you like that guy? He's terrible. No, no, no. Yeah. But so you read Prototype? That's when you first yeah. started liking him. I like him because I feel like, um, I, and maybe you feel like this, I feel a kindred spirit because we're both kind of loyal to the fellowships that we grew up in. Mm-hmm. Like we, we got to the place where we saw um, the, the downside, but we also could see the beauty of it. And, you know, he's, he's really sacramental. I feel like he, he is who we would be if we grew up a little bit more charismatic and with the ability to yeah. bite breathtakingly well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you if you could do that. Um, yeah. One of the things that I've regurgitated from him a whole lot was the thing about not removing a denominational name from your church. Um, he said this to me at like the first time I interviewed him in person uh, in Houston, maybe last year. He said, you know, when you do that, it, it makes you own your baggage and own the sins of your yep. past. Now, it's not very welcoming for other people, um, and so maybe it's not a good move for if you want to make outsiders feel welcome at your church, but for insiders, it's a good way to say, hey, this is who we are. And so he does have that with, you know, his charismatic background. He's, yeah, 
and, and we obviously have the, the common touching point of being influenced by N.T. Wright and reading a lot of the same mm-hmm. people. So, yeah, big fan of that. I loved it. So I've been waiting for this book to come out, uh, you know, knowing his story, knowing, you know, his departure from the church that he founded. And obviously the title talks about, you know, shipwrecking your life. And, and if you've listened to the podcast, you heard him talking about uh, in vague generalities about, you know, what happens when a pastor is no longer that and makes some mistakes. Um, yeah, a ghost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he talked about something that, as a young preacher, really connected a lot to me. He talked mm-hmm. about skipping adolescence. He was early on preaching. When, when, when did you start preaching on a consistent basis? 11. 11. 12. 12. Mom, you know, it's a 10-person church. Mom would use it as speech class in homeschool. I mean, she literally called it speech class sometimes <laughs> and wrote my first sermons the first year. Hmm. So... The first one I ever preached was on grace. Oh, that's How sweet. you can fall from it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you not? <laughs> I figured 11-year-old Jonathan would be doing the Zacchaeus story for obvious... No. Oh, you know what? Okay, first off, you gave him a hard time about not stooping yeah. when he took a picture with you. Mm-hmm. You photoshopped my head onto a junior <laughs> high school girl her body so that you could be a foot and a half taller that was no that was the only person i could find it was josh ross and i were looking for that was you are such a jerk no and then you give him a hard time for not ducking down to your left you know actually we were giving you a chance to stoop in that picture um thank you thank you for giving me the un unrequested chance you're welcome i'm here to help okay so when when you start preaching as 11 year old i guess that's even it's weird as a homeschooler and like in a church of 10, like there isn't the social stigma of, oh, you're an expert on the Bible. You're an expert on Jesus right, because yeah, you're yeah, preaching. Yeah. For, for me, I'm, I'm preaching as, you know, so I, I skipped my senior year of high school. And so I started college pretty young. Um, like, I, like I was 16 when I got there. And Hashtag so, humble brag. Huh? It was. Hashtag humble brag. <laughs> what are you doing again tomorrow, keynoter? Um, I didn't bring it up. You brought it up. You brought it up in the text. Anyway, so I started early, and one of the things I think that has had a deleterious effect on my development is the fact that you jump at don't are you deleterious because I, uh, I I don't know if I mentioned that I got out of high school earlier. I know words like deleterious. There was an illiterate. I know words like pretentious. How about that? <laughs> There was alliteration. It went with the next word I was saying. Just let me alone. (laughs) Anyway, but when you are set in that position, you in some ways feel like you need to live into that and who you're supposed to be because you're the preacher guy or whatever. Oh, yeah. And then you don't – you you shortcut your growth process, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't work. And I feel like it actually – uh, prevents you from having the normal development a person's supposed to have because you're trying to be something you're not, and you're not going through yeah. each of the stages. So I would, I started like guest preaching at other churches, which came, um, you know, when I was like 16 and 17. And by the time in college, I never went to a local church because I was always going around yeah, yeah. like tri-state area preaching and having a group of people. And so and I'm also a three on the Enneagram, which really does mean that you do not know yourself. Mm-hmm. Like you, when people ask me how I'm doing, I have to step back and I don't know. Um, like, how, but I know what I'm doing. 
mm-hmm. I know what project I'm trying to achieve. And so, I, I mean, I, I felt like that, that all that rang very true with me, not knowing who outside of ministry anything about who, what my identity was. Okay, so if you're going to talk to a 22-year-old, say senior in college, they're going into ministry, and they're in the same situation where they've felt like they, you know, the three walks in the room and says, who do I need to be to fit in this room? Um, mm-hmm. You know, they have that, regardless where they are on the Enneagram, but they do that because they're a preacher, they know the part they're supposed to play, and you're telling this 22-year-old some advice to, to help them navigate this kind of unhealthy situation. What do you think are practices, what do you think would help you not repeat those same mistakes if you could go back and do it again, or someone else who's in that same trajectory? Um, you know, I think things like having hobbies, learning to have a life outside of what you do, mm-hmm. um, the do things in secret, um, that you only do for God, you know, like do good things that people will never find out about, and then and then solitude. I think if I was to go back and change my twenties, it would have been um, being in solitude more. Because what's Dallas Willard's line? Like it's only being alone that you can really tr- you can discover you're never truly alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. I, my suggestion that I always seem to give to young preachers is don't take yourself too seriously. Like, cause there's, a, yeah. cause there's an air of pretense that comes with it that, okay, you're doing this and you want to be that. Um, j- just don't believe it. Like it. Do you think they can hear, like, I, cause I always have a, a young college age preaching intern ever since I've been at Highland. And, um, I, I, people told me that, and I just didn't understand it until I actually felt the pain of taking myself too seriously. So you don't think? Okay, so one time I was mentoring a young guy, and uh, you know he asked to be mentored by me. That's going to be a train wreck. I know. It's like you're clearly in <laughs> trouble. Well, um, the first step one: <laughs> better taste in mentors. <laughs> you're the worst. The first thing I said to him. Well, like, hold on. Were you, yeah, hold on. Let me say. Was it the first thing you said? All right, we're going to have to work on that hair. <laughs> Come with me. We're going to get a $300 haircut. This is not working. <laughs> no. well, I, okay, so while my stylist is there working on his hair, I'm, I'm telling him, um, okay, first thing is like, be humble. And he goes, yeah, I learned that lesson a few years ago. <laughs> and I was like, that's, that's it. Nailed it. Yep. Yep. I get it. That's me too. You're, we're, we're in the same trajectory. So. <laughs> Maybe he did choose wisely. <laughs> what? Uh, okay. What else did you? Li- anything else from the the Martin podcast you want to talk about? Um, well, his stuff on what you said to him about I confessed to the guy in college that went to jail, got arrested. Oh yeah, yeah. Where first you- off, I know that guy and he's a good dude. But the second is I. The, you at one point mentioned a mutual friend who had shipwrecked his life. Mm-hmm. Um, I confessed more stuff to that mutual friend after he messed up his life than I have to almost anybody else in my life. Yeah. Because suddenly he's totally safe. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I was shocked all the stuff you told him that, I mean, he, of course, called me and told me after. <laughs> yeah. But, well, okay, so then here's the follow-up question. What is it? 
what can we do as people who don't want to shipwreck our life? You don't want to have you know, this big issue that blows everything up that creates the same sort of welcoming presence for others to feel that same level of vulnerability, comfortability with you so that they can do that. Like, what can we do to shortcut the actual, like, major colossal failure to, to make that happen? Do you think there's anything that yeah. can make that? I don't know. I, I mean, I... I, I was. Are you asking a question you already have an answer to? Well, you'd have to, an answer to it, so I was going to jump in and kind of help, help you get there. <laughs> okay, go ahead. You were going to give me no, an answer? No, I don't want to give an answer now. So Andy Crouch, who um, I think said he couldn't do this podcast, but uh, who's a personal friend and stuff, <laughs> so he, he came to Highland and did stuff on leadership. <laughs> he said... He, says, he said that make dumb decisions all- about podcasts. That's what he said. <laughs> he said, I'm dumb. <laughs> That's exactly what he said and how he said it. He, um, he said leadership is always correlated with vulnerability. And, you know, at one point, John Lynn Martin was talking about his, you know, it felt really uh, vulnerable to, to write this book. And he, it was one of the more tender moments of his life. But then all these people were coming forward. I don't know that you have to have that particular kind of shipwreck, but I do know people who are, you know, who Brene Brown their life. Like, they don't put on airs or pretense, and um, the they are safe even even before a shipwreck, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's something. I like those people. Yeah, you like them because they're not, they're not trying. They don't have yeah. to impress you there's a level of i think part of it is like you know yourself i I think after i wonder like if after a major moral failure you finally get to know who you actually are because you've been that way the whole time but now what you know on the inside is known by everyone else on the outside it's that whole you know purity is to will one thing and to like to have this this internal and external direction of where you're going and so there's no sense of like I, i don't have to I don't have to pretend. I don't have to put a guise on. I don't have to put my best foot forward. I'm just putting the only foot forward I have. And yeah, I think that's. Uh, I think that that connects to other people. So, that, and that actually connects to the next. Is the next podcast trip with Joshua Ryan Butler? But you want to go to? Oh yeah. No, 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 no. That's great. if there's a transition to trip, then you can go there. Uh, no, Joshua Ryan Butler is perfect because one of the things Joshua Ryan Butler does is talk about um, the banality of evil. Mm-hmm. The, the genocide people being normal every day, like his grandpa. Yeah, and but did you the, did you like how he said, "I've seen the people who went to brothels, and I'm no different from them, but not the children's one. I'm not the chil- not the children's brothels." <laughs> yeah, it was very right. cool. just to be clear, just, those are monsters. Those guys, <laughs> not the same as me, which I appreciate. Yeah. Like we didn't, yeah. Mm-hmm. Make sure you clarify no, the difference. I, I think one of the great challenges that Christianity faces is the world cannot decide whether Christianity is too pessimistic about human nature or optimistic about human nature. Um, it depends on what the hot-button issues are of the day, right? Mm-hmm. That whoever it is that we're shaming or mad at, somebody shot, got, the gorilla got shot, that guy's yeah. a monster. And, and like, so I've heard my my liberal friends would say stuff like, you know, why, why is, I'm a good person. I have, you know, I don't do anything wrong. And one of the things I think Joshua Ryan Butler is doing is 
um, speaking into a culture that's very different than the Bible Belt because there is Baptist guilt, you know, just kind of latent in the Bible Belt. Yeah. I mean, Protestant guilt. Yeah. But, um, but even that is starting to, I think, diminish. And the the thing Joshua Ron Butler does really well in Skeletons in God's Closet, at least, is not let us off the hook with our culpability. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I can see that. I, I mean, I see the move that you're making, that progressive culture seems to say, you know, nothing's wrong with us. Conservative culture wants to say, no, no. But, like, how do you hold on to that if you don't want to go into, I don't know, kind of the angry Calvinist, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of stuff, where I I want there to be a move that doesn't end up with just shame. Like, there's a sense of we all have ownership of the world's pain. Like, we've all, like, participated in something that caused the pain that exists in the world. But I don't want to jump to shame, like, where there's, like, I, I like the Brene Brown, like, uh, guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is there's something wrong with me. Yeah. Like how, do, yeah. how do you not venture down the shame road? Because I see it, it seems like that's always where that, um, you know, the the hyper conservative confession. Road. Confession. I think one of the great one of the great things that confession does regularly is make you aware of yourself. You know, being pastors, I I don't think there's very many pastors who are like yeah. Humanity's pretty good, and and can just leave that sentence there, because at some point we sat in the rooms with the people who have had their lives wrecked by other people. Here's here's the thing, and this is a move I've made myself, but I've seen other people make it. When we talk about sin and evil, a lot of times what we're talking about is abstract, but our real sin is not abstract. Mm-hmm. It, it's always hurting other people. Um, now, what we can do is we can hide that cost. So we can buy the clothes that are made in the sweatshops because they're cheaper, and we can just ignore the fact that our lives are built on the on the shoulders of other people's suffering. And that's what we're really good at doing, um, those kind of things. And that takes a million different forms. But a lot of times, you know, I think, I, I bet if, if you were just to describe your week, you've sat in the rooms of other people suffering at the hands of other people. And um, this is the flip side of grace. It is to say, yeah, we're going to forgive that, but we're also going to name that. Mm-hmm. That was wrong and destructive and evil. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I think owning that kind of stuff, that that beats in everybody's heart because shame works. The reason I think shame is such a strong power in the world today is because people do not know their own hearts. And so, Wait, what do you mean by that? They, I don't know my. Well, I mean, like, um, any give me any example of social media shaming. And I, I read in the Times last year, one of the Kardashians gets up first thing in the morning, and she checks the internet to make sure nothing's bad, bad is said about her, because that's her greatest fear. She said. I think the reason we shame is to distance. Mm-hmm. There was an article last month, What's the Point of Moral Outrage, in the New York Times, and it was talking about it is to keep it – is, it's not because our cause is as virtuous as we think or that we're as virtuous as we think. 
It's that we're trying to signal to other people that we're good people. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to construct our identities against. Um, and, and basically the Christian faith would say, well, you're not that good. Mm-hmm. Like you're made in the image of God. Um, but that's the, and, and even, you know, even John Calvin has told the depravity thing was originally, he, he was very pastoral. He was trying to create a, a theology that would help people stop trying to worry about God. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and ending with No, him. that's good. That's good. Um, so one of the things I loved is that, uh, I'm just completely transitioned here to the stuff about the Pope. Yeah. Um, why do you think you and I didn't get picked to go see the Pope? What do you think... Dude, I knew that was what you were thinking of the whole time during that podcast. You, like, why did Jonathan not get picked to go see the Pope? That was my whole question. <laughs> no, yeah. Like, does he not know about he, Newsworthy? Was has he not heard of the podcast? Like, why not? How? That would be pretty sick. I'm not going to lie. That would be very exciting. Um, Man, I think God spared me by not having you invited to that. Because <laughs> you would be, you'd be un- insufferable for the rest of your life. Welcome to Newsworthy with Norsworthy. I'm Luke Norsworthy, your host and friend of the Pope. Uh, we're excited to have you on the show. <laughs> friend of the Pope. God. Yep, the Pope. The Pope would be a friend of the show. God. <laughs> oh, God. You would, oh, that would be so... You would start making up all kinds of stories that didn't happen between you and Frank. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. Well, what I do know is that I'm friends with you, and that's enough for me. Yeah. Unless the Pope Good. calls and then I'll drop you like a bag of bricks. Um, <laughs> speaking of my friends that I'll drop you for, let's talk about Trip Fuller. Um, okay. I'm kidding. I would never leave you for Trip. No, no. You've, you've already said it. Boresworthy. Oh, boo. Boo on that. Um, okay, so one thing that we talked about um, was the future of the church and where it's yeah. going. And... So I had a prediction about it being like really big, really small, just like practical about yeah. like the size of it. What do you think your projection of, I think that it was like 10 years from now, like what do you think the church will look like a decade or two decades from now? Well, when, when I was listening to that, I thought that was the most fascinating part of y'all's podcast. Um, what I think, More fascinating than when we talked about you? Yeah. Yes. I, I think Trip is coming from a totally different context, like living in Southern California and a, a lot of different ph- philosophical underpinnings. I think the difference between me and, and y'all in that conversation is stuff we've talked about before on wrap-ups, which is I don't believe in moral progress anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I don't – you know, the 10 years from now – here's a couple of things I would add to what I think the future of the church is going to look like. I think, and it actually disagrees with some of the stuff that y'all were saying, um, I think it's going to look more Catholic. And by that, I mean more sacramental. Um, I think the modern, modernity is going to come to the end of itself. It's starved for, for things that are ancient. It's starved for mystery. And um, y'all actually went the other way with, um, preaching, which I think is really important, and but you remember you had Jamie Smith on last month, mm-hmm. and and he actually said if you go to a church that's just 
a couple of songs and a TED talk, then I don't think it's doing what it's supposed to be doing in your soul. Okay, two things. First of all, it was Tripp who said that it was preaching that's going to be the center of it. And I think that's a great suggestion for where it should go for obvious reasons. Yeah, because it gives you job security. I mean, that totally makes sense. And I, and I believe in preaching. I think there's something really important that happens to it. Um, I just think... Well, I just think sacraments are going to, we're going to rediscover how important those are. And okay, so how do, you, how do you think that changes what church looks like? If we're going to have a higher emphasis on sacraments, which both, both you and I have a very high view of what sacraments should be in our context where it's not, um, it's not the same as my previous context as a church planner where you have... Uh, you know, a smaller group that can literally get around tables and do that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, a, in a larger setting, how do you think people are going to bring sacraments to a more central part? That's a great question. It's one that I, I think of often. I mean, you want me to get real practical or? I don't care what you do. So I'm trying to talk Eat? Jeff Childers into teaching everybody who's going to do communion for the next year on what communion is. And then I, I want to have a loaf of bread and and a glass of wine slash grape juice up there and just have everybody say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then at the end of the service, I don't know if this is going to happen or not, but I want to have what Ian Cron did with us at preacher camp that one time and have kids come up and take the bread and and feed it to, you can't throw it away. It's the body of Christ, so feed it to Mm -hmm. create. Um, I think that'll maybe help enchant or help children realize the world already is enchanted. Hmm. Um, that's that's just an idea that I have right now. But I think it'll be stuff like that that help because there is a limit to what information can do. Yeah. So you think the issue is like the l- less uh, intellectual, the less um, – I don't want to say intellectual, but maybe the less cognitive – and more experiential right. is what we're looking for. And the sacraments tie you to something that's you can taste and touch and and experience in a way that just words don't do that for you. Right. And knowledge. I mean, I know some really incro- incredibly intelligent people who aren't that great of people. Um, and and transformation does not just happen by intelligence. Yeah. And yeah. The, the, pri- the pride part of it. So that's one thing. And then the other thing, when I say I don't believe in moral progress, here's an example of what I mean by that. Um, I think we're going to see, instead of a future where it just gets more and more inclusive until everybody's in, I think as human nature is the way it is, we're going to see in the next 10 to 20 years a, a, um, a pushback um, a reaction to inclusion that is going to look like um, um, so here's here's the underbelly of inclusion. Nobody can be special, right? Okay. I mean, like, or which could be flipped to be positive that no one's left out. Right. So that that's right. I mean, like, yeah. But what happens is when a, I mean, I, I don't think this what we're world we're, we're living in is somehow evolved to a place where... Yeah, that, see, that's a big difference. I mean, that, that's part of the conservative read, is that we're going to hold on to something that 
it's not getting better, it's not getting worse, it's the same. And so we want to hold on to what we've done. The progressive underpinning is that things are getting better. And if you yeah. don't have that, then I mean, it seems like that's the, that's the crux of the matter. Like if you ch- turn differently on that subject, then everything else is different. Right. And so, so I would, and I would point to um, last month in the Atlantic, there was an article where this person was interviewing a 22-year-old Trump supporter. Did you see that article? I don't think so. Oh, it's fascinating, man. White guy lives in San Francisco, uh, engaged to a Asian-American woman. He's a feminist. Um, he, like... So not your typical, like, that's not your typical right. breakdown for someone you'd assume to be a Trump supporter. And they interviewed him, and hold on, I actually pulled it up uh, to to mention it to you, but the... Okay. He said, um, political, because of, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but I feel in a lot of ways that my identity as a white man is shamed. I'm in zero ways a na- white nationalist or supremacist, and I consider myself a feminist. I will sacrifice my career, career goals so my fiance can pursue her ambitions, but I do not want to be shamed or held back or attacked just for being who I am. And then he goes into, and, and I'm not, I, the, the Atlantic says, quoting the Federalist and David Marcus, that it's a largely anti-white rhetoric that's fueling white nationalism um, and that we need to kind of take a careful look at all the stuff that's fallen under the rubric of political correctness and study the real harm that's done by its excesses and um, take the, the valid, legitimate stuff that there's much of there. Mm-hmm. Um, because what that's doing is for all its rhetoric it is it's just moving the tent pole and Hmm. a large part of what you're saying and by the way like um white dudes are not in danger of being marginalized i mean yeah so it's not that but it was a fascinating article because i think the, the the trump phenomenon is an example of of some stuff that happens when um we okay. assume moral progress, and then we're shocked at like, whoa, this is who we live with in the world? Okay, so just now you made a strong argument for Donald Trump. Um, what? And so I just want to retort <laughs> by saying you, uh, you just made the positive spin of it. Like you're saying that— I was reading the Atlantic article because the guy was trying to figure out why in the world the— I just thought it was a fascinating thing, too. Like, who is voting for Donald Trump? The The article was, why I will vote for Donald Trump no matter what he says. And the point was, basically, if your commander-in-chief is not politically correct, and Lord knows he's not, then that'll trickle down into the culture where this guy won't feel ashamed for being, you know, hmm. white. Wow. I've never felt white shame before. I felt white privilege before. I've never yeah, felt yeah, yeah. white shame. and. But if you're, well, he's living in San Francisco, and the you know basically he's he is in a hub that is very sensitive to inclusion and and really great, wonderful, beautiful but, thing. But isn't the pushback okay that that the white man has always been included, whatever circle he goes into, because he's al- always yeah, getting yeah. the first seat at the table, and so his fear of like 
the white person oppression is really that he's now a part of the table with everyone else and that yeah. he doesn't have superior superiority. Right. And, and our friend Sean Palmer says, I think this is the most succinct best way to say it, that for people of privilege, um, uh, what is it? Being egalitarian is a loss. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that, and that's right. That's fair. But there's more there. I'm probably not describing it well. Like, I'm not trying to say uh, white guys need to get some slack. Mm-hmm. The I realize how we've had life handed to us on a silver platter in so many ways. Um, but what I'm trying to push back on is this thing of um, moral progress and us being able to. Sl- in 10 years, I don't think we're going to look around and be like, all right, everybody's included. Okay, you know what's weird is that when I talk to like AJ Swoboda and he's like, oh, do you not believe in the you know, sin and you don't believe in you know, that things are bad? And I, I want to say, no, I do believe that we're getting better. And when I hear someone on the other side talk about it, I want to say, yep. wait a minute, do you really think – so I don't – it's like I'm a re- – like this is a reverse Enneagram 3 kind of thing. Like when, who's, whatever room I'm in, I want to say, no, that, there's, there's holes in that. I do think yeah. we're better than we were 200 years ago in America. But then someone else wants to say that, that oh, yeah, we are better than we were 200. I want to say, well, what about somewhere else in the world? Uh, so I, Yeah. That's a tough one. Okay, so let's transition. Let's get to the last one. Um, Lisa Sharon Harper. She wrote a book called The Very Good Gospel. I think, I think The Very's in there. I'm turning around and looking for it on the shelf, wherever it is. Um, Was that a good book? Yes. I, li- I liked getting to know her. And uh, so she had did some interesting stuff with the creation story, uh, Genesis 1, tied it like heavily to the Babylonian creation myth that um, uh, many people believe were like was the inspiring story that the uh, person telling the first creation story adapted it from. And so like that was interesting. That was good. Uh, what stood out to me uh, as the most poignant part was moving the centrality of the gospel away from getting into heaven and made it more about shalom. Yeah. And what was fascinating to me is that her, her book was based in these pilgrimage pilgrimages she took. Um, one was through some of the civil rights uh, central places, which is a trip I know you made last summer with Richard Beck mm-hmm. and a handful of other people. Uh, and then, then uh, Native American, and then I think it's Croatia, Serbia. And so these things helped her transform her understanding of the gospel of moving away from getting to heaven when you die and more to a sense of like participating in shalom, kingdom of heaven stuff right now, which as I've had the conversation and I've thought about it for a few weeks now, I still don't know if that's the move most people make. I feel like most of the time when people experience the worst parts of humanity, they think, Good thing I'm leaving this world. Good thing this mm-hmm. world's burning up and I'm moving on to a better one. And it seems like that's been a sustainable way of understanding hope for so many people in adversity, which makes her move so it's so unique to me. And, it, and it, I think it's the right move. I think it's theologically founded, but it just doesn't seem as practical as the other one. Yeah. So Jeff Childers once told me that um, there's in Christian history, this happens a lot, what, exactly what you're talking about. When things are really, really difficult here, people talk about heaven as somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And when there's seasons of prosperity, um, people talk about heaven more as, as like this world mm-hmm. even better, set right, the injustices 
ceased and stuff. Like there's still a break, but it's it's not as as definitive. Um, but the move that she's making there, I actually I, I I think I think you're right. She that's a really needed move for Christians in the West today, because I don't think heaven is heaven without shalom. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And um, so even when you are talking on the podcast, I was thinking about, I grew up with, she said going over to her best friend's house, she saw a Confederate flag over their bed. I had a Confederate flag over my bed. Um, Explains a lot. Growing up, I, yeah, I think it actually just came with the bed. Growing <laughs> up. Like, buy a free bed, get a free racist flag with your with your bed. Uh, um, Arkansas. But it, that's because we disconnected the age to come in which we will be worshiping with people from every tribe and every tongue from the here and now. And I think that move of um, Scott McKnight's thing on the first hour of heaven is going to be painful for a lot of people mm-hmm. because, you know, I've, I've had, I am working hard to repent of my racism now as a way of practicing for the age to come. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So that might be. I, no, I think good that, that Trump supporter too. Yeah. No. <laughs> I I think that's a solid theological move, and I think that's like the healthiest way of understanding Jesus, the kingdom of heaven. That it's not you know pie in the sky, but it's it's the here and now. It's it's breaking in. We're participating in it. Uh, but I wonder, like, if if you if you read the Gospels, there's a clear bent. The Gospel, the story found in Scripture, there's a clear bent towards the benefit of the underdog, the poor, the outcast. And it's weird that the the kingdom message of here and now would be my understanding of Jesus' message when it's not seen as the same central message to those who are often the ones given the position of benefit in throughout Scripture. Does that make sense? Me- yeah. You remember what Richard Beck says, the gospel is what the poor says it is? Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is, man, there's something to that. Like, um, I, I, I think that's one of the greatest strengths liberation theology has, mm-hmm. which is basically, um, uh, it's one thing I learned reading the Bible with people in jail. Mm-hmm. Like, I would never have seen that as, and so, like, even to wrap up all the other stuff, Butler's talk about wrath. God's wrath is good news. You know, the, it really is good news to, people who are not privileged mm-hmm. that God is mad at the way the world is and the way we've carved it up for our own advantages. Yep. Well, as Scott McKnight says, the first hour of heaven is going to be very painful or hard for some people. I hope this hour hasn't been that painful um, for <laughs> others. I'm sure it's been great for everyone. Um, <laughs> that's my painful for me. Oh man. I knew you were going to say that. Mm. Okay. Well, let's wrap this thing up. Um, <clears throat> Uh, go ahead, Jonathan. Ask me who I have next month. <laughs> You're the worst. Oh, who's on the podcast next? No, I don't even want to answer now. I'm not going to answer. You're all just oh, got to be surprised. On, stop sulking. No, I'm just. You have one job, Jonathan. One job is to ask the question. Okay, I'll say it. Okay. Um, next up on the podcast, we're going to have uh, me talking about Rob Bell <laughs> being my friend again. Um, are you also... are you me right now? Are you answering? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. I, th- I thought that's what I was. Supposed to do. <laughs> um, I'll also pepper in some humble brags about 
you know, my academic achievements, <laughs> though limited, much, much discussed on this podcast. Um, I'll, I'll point out every time a podcast interview tells me I did a good question, I will bring that back up at the inter- end of the interview. And I'll talk about Richard Rohr's love for me a mm-hmm. few times. That's a guarantee in July. Well, let me tell you this. We are... Two more wrap-up podcasts away from me and Richard Rohr returning to one another in our friendship. Got a <laughs> trip lined up for uh, September out to Albuquerque. So, Are you going to make a with or without you joke? Hey, this podcast is great. With or without you, Rohr. No, I would never is, say that. Is it you too? No, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> no, not at all. Not going to do that. That's in September, not next month. Next month... Uh, got the mailbag that my dad and I recorded. Oh, gosh. Oh, you've already done it? Yeah, I did it with my dad when I was out in uh, Abilene last week. That's going to be well, good. That'll spice it up a little bit. Yeah. We've got the, uh, the Enneagram podcast that Suzanne and Ian started. Uh, oh, I think it's have a, you read their new book yet? No, uh, but what I did do is they were down in Austin for two days recording their podcast, and so I helped them. And we're gonna, I think I'm going to air one of those on here. I did, I did like an intro to their intro podcast, so... Probably going to have something from them on here, and uh, there's some talk of maybe a uh, return of Chris Green, Pete Enns, another three-man weave. Dude, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. And you we'll, should have, I, I'd like to hear them talk about sacraments. Sacraments? Okay. Yeah. We'll put that down. Maybe we'll talk sacraments with them. And uh, we're, still, we're still talking with uh, um, Shane Claiborne's people yet. Some of you have responded about that, and it, uh, it might happen. I don't know. Whatever. We'll see. But Jonathan, you've got a wonderful personality. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for having me. It was a good month, man. It really was a good month. Thanks good month. for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>